Hello. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Infinite Cast, a podcast. Um, it's good morning, Sunday morning. Good morning, Sunday morning. Uh, it's, it's wet. It's wet. It's a hurricane here in New York. Um, yesterday was the included the, s- the wettest single hour in all of recorded New York history, which I think is a funny fact. New York got wet without <laughs> even trying. New York gets wet without even trying. Uh, we're here. We're watching some classic season one Mad Men's this morning. Yeah, uh, which getting triggered. Getting triggered. Uh, get, feel, feeling. Uh, watching based. Uh, based on Draper. Uh, do his stupid have little the, antics. Have his. Uh, have his bra moments. <laughs> every every child is abused by their parent. Every pregnant lady is smoking and drinking <laughs> and alcohol. Eating raw hamburger. <laughs> every every housewife is a uh, um you know get getting uh, uh the the nerves the the vapors every yes. every female employee <laughs> is uh, getting hit on constantly at all hours. Uh, I know this isn't really a, t- a TV podcast, but I do. I feel that there is something I don't know. It, it isn't really a TV podcast. You're right. <laughs> right. It's, a it's book about po- a book. It's about <laughs> a book. But I feel like there is something about Mad Men that that feels like, like in in this in this book's universe. Uh, I guess it's just like the kind the kind of hyper detailed alienation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all and also being ostensibly uh, a drama, but also. I'm sorry, Mad Men is the funniest TV show ever made. I agree. Um, I, it's it's my favorite. Yeah, it is. It is so fucking funny, especially when you watch it several times and just like every fucking moment plays when you know what what the show is like a, a fucking joke. It's great. Uh, and I think and I was I told Molly like I was going to drop this take uh, and see what she thought during the show. I feel like given his cultural position and his whole thing and also his obsession with pop culture, if David Foster Wallace had lived and also was maybe a little more adjusted, couldn't you imagine him doing like doing a season of a prestige, like getting a TV show basically and and running for like one season and being a cult hit, but then like not going on, like basically making a fucking Lodge 49. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny writers transitioning to TV. I think one of the more recent, it, you, you can write a book that gets turned into a television show, right. but it isn't often that the same writer, uh, Made for Love by Alyssa Nutting, she actually wrote on the show. Right, she wrote the show. She got the the uh, airlift out of uh, of uh, <laughs> the dreariness <laughs> of novel writing for the, the, the glamorous the world literary of ghetto. Yeah, yeah. For, to become a Hollywood sicko. Yeah, but also, especially even by time he died, like. He, di- he died right, right in the middle of the golden age of television. television. But by the time he died, he was he was already like not just a writer, but like a brand. Yeah, and that is the kind of thing that that people are like, hey, we can turn this into a TV show. You know, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about. I suppose. Uh, I would like to see it. Yeah, and that would be in the in in its own way the best Infinite Jest adaptation is not an adaptation of Infinite Jest, but what would David Foster Wallace have made if he had been given the chance to be like show run a TV show. How about a TV show called Dave? <laughs> oh wait, do they have that already? Yes, that's the little dicky oh, show. Oh damn, it seems it seems that my idea has been pinched. <laughs> Dave, this fall on NBC. A multi-camera sitcom that's just about, about a writer who's just barely uh not depressed enough to like yeah. keep keep working. Yeah. 
That's right. honestly kind of what the end of the road, if you tweak that a little bit about, is like, wonder end if this... End of the tour, you mean? Yeah, end of the tour. Uh, wonder if this literary t- uh, literary t- titan who is considered, you know, a genius of his era was actually just like a petty, horny moron. Yeah. Aren't we all? <laughs> Aren't we all? All right, let's get into this. This is okay. going to be our third straight week of this uh, Boston AA chapter, and I think and you said th- we're not even going to get out of it this one. I don't think so. We'll see. The, I right. think the reason this section is so long is because all of the um, the moving parts are starting to come together, and so it needs some time to, to, to breathe there. But. All right, great. At the white flag raffle break, Gately usually stands around chain smoking with the Ennett House residents <laughs> so that he's casually available to answer questions and empathize with complaints. He usually waits till after the meeting to do his own complaining to ferocious Francis, with whom <laughs> Gately now shares the important duty of breaking down the hall, sweeping floors and emptying ashtrays and wiping down the long cafeteria tables which FFG's function is limited because he's on oxygen and his function consists mostly of standing there sucking oxygen and holding an unlit cigar (laughs) while Gately breaks down the hall. Gately rather likes Ken Erdetti, who came into the house about a month ago from some cushy Belmont rehab. Erdetti's an upscale guy, what Gately's mother would have called a yuppie, an account executive at Viney and Veal's advertising downtown, his intake form said, and though he's about Gately's age, he's so softly good-looking in that soft, mannequinish way Harvard and tough schoolboys have, and looks so smooth and groomed all the time, even in jeans and a plain cotton sweater, that Gately thinks of him as much younger, totally ungrizzled, and refers to him mentally as kid. <laughs> Erdetti's in the house mainly for, quote, marijuana addiction, unquote, which Gately has a hard time identifying with anybody getting in enough trouble with weed to leave his job and condo to bunk in a room full of tattooed guys who smoke in their sleep and to work, <laughs> like, pumping gas. Erdetti just started his nine-month humility job at the Merritt Station down by North Harvard Street in Alston for 32 minimum wage hours a week. Or to have his leg be joggling like that all the time from tensions of withdrawal from fucking grass? But it's not Gately's place to say what's bad enough to make somebody come in and what isn't. Not for anybody else but himself. And the shapely but big-time troubled new girl Kate Gompert... Hey. who mostly just stays in her bed in the new women's five-woman room when she isn't at meetings and is on a suicidality contract with Pat and isn't getting the usual pressure to get a humility job and gets to get some sort of script meds out of the meds locker every morning. Kate Gompert's counselor, Danielle S., reported at the last staff meeting that Kate had finally opened up and told her she'd mostly come in for weed, too, and not the lightweight prescription trank she'd listed on her intake form. Gately used to treat weed like tobacco. (laughs) He wasn't like some other narcotics addicts who smoked weed when they couldn't get anything else. He always smoked weed and could always get something else and simply smoke weed while he did whatever else he could get. (laughs) Gately doesn't miss weed much. The shocker type AA miracle is he doesn't much miss the Demerol either today. Sorry, I thought I was hearing dripping uh, in our home. Uh. It's no, raining, but also it's it's lightninging, which is the second time we recorded dur- this during a wow. uh, a lightning storm, which is funny. A hard November wind is spattering goopy sleet against the broad <laughs> window all all windows all d- around the hall. Goopy sleet. The Provident Nursing Home cafeteria is lit by a checkerboard array of oversized institutional bulbs overhead, a few of which are always low and give off fluttery strobes. The fluttering bulbs are why Pat Montesian and all the other photic seizure-prone area AAs never go to White Flag. 
opting for the freeway group over in Brookline or the candy-ass Lake Street meeting up in West Newton <laughs> on Sunday nights, which Pat M. bizarrely drives all the way up from her home down on the South Shore in Milton to get to to hear people talk about their analysts and sobs. <laughs> there is no way to account for people's tastes in AA. The White Flag Hall is so brightly lit up, all Gately can see out of any of the windows is a kind of shiny, drooling black against everybody's pale reflection. Miracles, one of the Boston AA terms, Erdetti and the brand new and very shaky veiled girl resident standing over him complain oh, they find wow. hard They've to stomach. A, they really got everybody Gangs all, here. all together. It's like the Avengers assembling. As in, we're all miracles here and don't leave five minutes before the miracle happened. <laughs> uh, and to stay sober for 24 hours is a miracle. Except the brand new girl, either Joel V or Joel D., uh, who said she'd hit the occasional meeting in the past before her bottom and had been roundly repelled and is still pretty much cynical and repelled. She said on the way down to Provident under Gately's direct new resident supervision, says she finds even the word miracle preferable to the constant AA talk about the grace of God, which reminds her of wherever she grew up, where she's indicated places of worship were often aluminum trailers or fiberboard shacks and churchgoers played with copperheads in the services to honor something about serpents and tongues. She She's from like Eastern Kentucky, she's right? She's from Shiny Prize, Kentucky. Shiny Prize, Kentucky, right. Gately's also observed how Erdetti's also got that Tufts Harvard way of speaking without seeming to move his lower jaw. <laughs> it's as if it's its own country or something, Erdetti complains, legs crossed in maybe a bit of a faggy schoolboy way. <laughs> looking around at the raffle break, sitting in Gately's generous shadow. The first time I ever talked over at the St. E's meeting on Wednesday, somebody comes up after the Lord's Prayer and says, Good to hear you. I could really ID with that bottom you were sharing about, the isolating, the can't and can't. It's the greenest I've felt in months hearing you. And then gives me this raffle ticket with his phone number that I didn't ask for and says, I'm right where I'm supposed to be, which I have to say I found a bit patronizing. The best noise Gately produces is his laugh, which booms and reassures, and a certain haunted hardness goes out of his face when he laughs. Like most huge men, Gately has kind of a high, hoarse speaking voice. His larynx sounds compressed. I don't know. I, I don't think I can do it. I still hate that right where you're supposed to be thing, he says, laughing. I still hate that right where you're supposed to. Is, is that how you imagine his voice? Yeah. Uh, he likes that Erdetti sitting, you know what he sounds like? Oh, this is not going to be a good reference for you because you didn't watch this with me, but in Get Rich or Die Trying, the like main, <laughs> like sort of, um, uh, illicit businessman in town spoke like this. Yeah. It's like a classic it's kind of gangster. Like yeah. that, that's the Gately voice. Yeah. We have received feedback that people like when you do voices. So, oh God. Okay. Uh, he likes that Erdetti sitting, looks right up at him and cocks his head slightly to let Gately know he's got his full attention. <laughs> Gately doesn't know that this is a requisite for a white collar job where you have to show you're attending fully to <laughs> clients who are paying major sums and get to expect an overt display of full attention. Mad men. Gately is still not yet a good judge of anything about upscale people except where they tend to hide their valuables. Boston AA, <laughs> with its emphasis on the group, is intensely social. The raffle break goes on and on. An intoxicated street guy with a venulated nose and missing incisors and electrician's tape wrapped around his shoes is trying to sing Volare up at the <laughs> empty podium microphone. He is gently, cheerfully induced off stage by a crocodile with a sandwich and an arm around the shoulders. There's a certain pathos to the crocodile's kindness. 
his clean flannel arm around the weather-stained shoulders, which Pathos Gately feels and likes being able to feel it, while he says, but at least the good to hear you, I quit minding. It's just what they say when somebody's got done speaking. They can't say, like, good job or you spoke well because it can't be anybody's place here to judge if anybody else did good or bad or whatnot. You know what I'm saying, Tiny there? Tiny Ewell in a blue suit and laser chronometer? Chronometer? And tiny shoes whose shine you could read by is sharing a dirty aluminum ashtray with Nell Gunther, who has a glass eye, which she amuses herself by usually wearing so the pupil and iris face in and the dead white and tiny manufacturer's specifications on the back of the eye face out. Both of them are pretending to study the blonde false wood of the tabletop, and Ewell makes a bit of a hostile show of not looking up or responding to Gately or entering into the conversation in any way, which is his choice and on him alone, so Gately lets it go. Wade McDade has a Walkman going, which is technically okay at the raffle break, although it's not a real good idea. Chandler Foss is flossing his teeth and pretending to throw the used floss at Jennifer Belbin. Most of the Edit House residents are mingling satisfactorily. The couple of residents that are black are mingling with other blacks, which takes us to end note 141. <laughs> uh, okay, I don't really feel like saying this. This, uh, this is a sort of a second part of 140, which is Don G's uh, North Shore Vulgate signifier for trite banal is limp. Uh, likewise, that his private term for blacks is mm, the N-word, which is unfortunately still all he knows. Sorry, I can't say that word. Uh, I don't think that you have to. I don't feel like <laughs> but it. But we get the gist. Yeah. And the point is also that he wrote it. <laughs> that he wrote it. The Deal Kid and Dooney Glynn are amusing themselves telling homosexuality jokes to Morris <laughs> Hanley. Sexuality jokes. Who sits smoothing his hair with his fingertips, pretending not to even acknowledge his left hand still bandaged. Oh, I believe uh, Morris Hanley was the guy who got his fo- uh, his hand stabbed with a fork. Uh, okay. Remember that? This is a, the, an anecdote from long ago. <laughs> Alfonso Parias Carbo is <laughs> standing with three Alston Group guys, smiling broadly and nodding, not understanding a word anybody says. It's, are all the Ennett House people in this white flag group is not that all of them take, well uh, like pat for example is like the head of edit house and she goes away and she goes to the, you don't the have fancy to, group in all in, but a lot of people do okay so most of the edit house people are in this white flag group mm-hmm. okay bruce green i do has, like that it's called white flag because it makes me think of ba- black flag yeah bruce green were you gonna say something else i also i mean yeah just that white flag is a good i I think it's a good name for this because it is like the white flag of surrender that you surrender to the the illness. Uh, Bruce Green has gone downstairs to the men's head and amused Gately by asking his permission first. (laughs) Gately told him to go knock himself out. (laughs) Green has good big arms and no gut, even after all the substances, and Gately suspects he might have played some ball at some point. Kate Gompert is totally by herself at a non-smoking table over by a window, ignoring her pale reflection and making little cardboard tents out of her raffle tickets and moving them around. (laughs) Clinette Henderson clutches another black girl and laughs and says, girl, several times. Emile Minty is clutching his head. Jeff Day in his black turtleneck and blazer keeps lurking on the fringe of various groups of people pretending he's part of the conversations. Clinette? Is is, is that one of the people from the the AV trap chapter. Yeah, I think it's um, uh, I I think I think it might be the the person who was speaking in okay. it. Okay, Clinette. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay. God, re- yeah, it really is. Everybody's here. Mm-hmm. Uh. And re- of course, remember Jeff Day, <laughs> the the pedant. Uh, no immediate sign of Bert F. Smith or Charlotte Treat. Randy Lenz, <laughs> in his cognito white mustache and sideburns, is doubtless at the payphone in the northeast corner of the Provident lobby downstairs. Lenz spends nearly unacceptable amounts of time either on a phone or trying to get in position to use a phone. <laughs> I like nearly unacceptable. <laughs> Because what I like, Gately says to Erdetti, Erdetti really is listening, even though there's a compellingly cheap young woman in a brief white skirt and absurd black mesh stockings sitting with her legs nicely crossed. One strap, low spike black Ferragamos, too, at the periphery of his vision. And the woman is with a large man, which makes her even more compelling. And also the veiled new girl's breasts and her hips clefts are compelling and distracting next to him, even in a long, baggy, loose blue sweater that matches the embroidered selvage around her veil. What I think I like is how it was good to hear you ends up saying like two separate things together. <laughs> Gately's also saying this to Joelle, who it's weird, but you can tell she's looking at you even through the linen veil. There's maybe half a dozen or so other veiled people in the white flag hall tonight. A decent percentage of people in the 11-step union of the hideously and improbably deformed are also in 12-step fellowships for other issues besides hideous deformities. It's an 11-step program. Most of the room's veiled AAs are women, though there is this one male veiled UHID guy that's an active white flagger, Tommy S. or F., who years ago nodded out on a stuffed acrylic couch with a bottle of Remy and a lit tipperillo. The guy now wears UHID veils and a whole spectrum of silk turtlenecks and assorted hats and classy lambskin driving gloves. There's something about the description of that guy specifically that sounds like a Frank Zappa song. Yes. Gately's had the UHID and veil philosophy explained to him in passing a couple of times, but still doesn't much get it. It seems like a gesture of shame and concealment still to him, the veil. Pat Montesian had said there's been a few other UH, uh, UHIDs who'd gone through Ennett House prior to the year of dairy products from the American heartland, which is when new resident Gately came wobbling in. But this Joelle Van Dyne, who Gately feels he has zero handle on yet as a person or how serious she is about putting down substances and coming in to get really straight, uh, this Joelle is the first veiled resident Gately's had under him as a staffer. This Joel girl that wasn't even on the two-month waiting list for intake got in overnight under some private arrangement with somebody on the house's board of directors, upscale Enfield guys into charity and directing. <laughs> There'd been no intake interview with Pat at the house. The girl just showed up two days ago right after supper. She'd been up at Brigham and Women's for five days after some sort of horrific OD-type situation said to have included both defib paddles and priests. She'd had real luggage and this, like, Chinese portable dressing screen thing with clouds <laughs> and Popeye dragons that, even folded lengthwise, took both green and uh, Pariah's Carbo to lug upstairs. <laughs> Pariah's Carbo. <laughs> you know. There's been no talk of a humility job for her, and Pat's counseling the girl personally. Pat's got some privately directed arrangement with the girl. Gately's already seen enough private type arrangements between certain staffers <laughs> and residents to feel like it's maybe kind of a character defect of Ennett House. A girl from the Brookline Young People's Group over in a cheerleader skirt and slut stockings is ignoring all the ashtrays and putting her extra long gasper out on the bare tabletop two rows over as she laughs like a seal at something an acneed guy in a long camel hair car coat he hasn't taken off and sockless leather dance shoes Gately's never seen at a meeting before says. And he's got his hand on hers as she grinds the gasper out. 
Something like putting a cigarette out against the wood grain plastic tabletop, which Gately can already see the ragged black burn divot that's formed. It's something the rankness of which would have never struck him one way or the other before, until Gately took on half the break down the hall and wiped down the table's job at ferocious Francis G.'s suggestion, and now he feels sort of proprietary about the Providence tabletops. But it's not like you can go over and take anybody else's inventory and tell them how to behave. He settles for imagining the girl pinwheeling through the air toward a glass wall. <laughs> when they say it sort of me- when they say it, it sort of means like what you said was good for them. It helped them out somehow, he says. But plus now, I also like saying it myself because if you really think about it, it also means it was good to be able to hear you, to really hear. He's trying subtly to alternate and look at Erd Eddie and Joel both like he's addressing them both. It's not something he's good at. His head's too big to be subtle with. Because I remember for like the first 60 days or so, I couldn't hear shit. I didn't hear nothing. I'd just sit there and compare. I'd go to myself like, I never rolled a car. I never lost a wife. I never bled from the rectum. Gene would tell (laughs) me to just keep coming for a while, and sooner or later, I'd start to be able to both listen and hear. He said it's hard to really hear, but he wouldn't say what was the difference between hearing and listening, which pissed me off. But after a while, I started to really hear. It turns out, and this is just for me maybe, but it turns out hearing the speaker meant like all of a sudden hearing how fucking similar the way he felt and the way I felt were out there at the bottom before we each came in. Instead of just sitting here resenting being here and thinking how he bled from the ass and I didn't and how that means I'm not as bad as him yet and I can still be out there. One of the tricks to being of real service to newcomers is not to lecture or give advice but only talk about your own personal experience and what you were told and what you found out personally and to do it in a casual but positive and encouraging way. Plus, you're supposed to try and identify with the newcomer's feelings as much as possible. Ferocious Ferocious Francis G. says this is one of the ways guys with just a year or two sober can be most helpful, being able to sincerely ID with the newly sick and suffering. Ferocious Francis told Gately as they were wiping down tables that if a crocodile with decades of sober AA time can still sincerely empathize and identify with a whacked out, bug-eyed, disease-ridden newcomer, then there's something deeply fucked up about that crocodile's recovery. (laughs) The crocodiles, decades sober, live in a totally different spiritual galaxy inside. One long-timer describes it as he has a whole new unique interior spiritual castle now to live in. (laughs) Part of this new Joelle girl's pull for Ken Erdetti isn't just the sexual thing of her body, which he finds made way sexier by the way the overlarge blue coffee-stained sweater tries to downplay the body thing without being so hubristic as to try to hide it. Sloppy sexiness pulls Erdetti in like a well-groomed moth to a lit window. But it's also the veil, wondering what horrific contrast to the body's allure lies swollen or askew under that veil. It gives the pull a perverse sideways slant, that makes it even more distracting. And so Erdetti cocks his head up a little more at Gately and narrows his eyes to make his listening look terribly intense. He doesn't know that there's an abstract distance in the look that makes it seem like he's studying a real bitch of a seven iron on the 10th rough or something. (laughs) The look doesn't communicate what he thinks his audience wants it to. The raffle break is winding down as everybody starts to want their own ashtray. (laughs) God, so much cigarettes. Two more big urns of coffee emerge from the kitchen door over by the literature table. Erdetti is probably the second biggest leg and foot joggler in president in present residence after Jeffrey D. Joel V D now says something very strange. 
It's a very strange little moment right at the end of the raffle break, and Gately later finds it impossible to describe it in his log entry for the PM shift. It's the first time that he realizes that Joelle's voice, crisp and rich and oddly empty, her accent just barely Southern and with a strange and it turns out Kentuckian lapse in the pronunciation of all apicals except S, is familiar in a faraway way that makes it both familiar and yet lets Gately be sure he's never once met her before out there. Would he say that it's familiar, but it's not too familiar, but it's not, not too, too not, not familiar? familiar. She inclines, it's almost like perhaps just by hearing audio, he's uh, formed some sort of a parasocial relationship yes, to her. Yes, exactly. She inclines the plane of her blue bordered veil briefly toward the floor's tile. Very bad tile. <laughs> Scab colored. <laughs> Nauseous. Worst thing about the big room by far. Brings it back up level. Unlike Erdetti, she's standing and in flats is nearly Gately's height. Oh, I didn't realize she's tall. <laughs> what? She's really tall. <laughs> she's very tall. Hmm. Could be a sp- Step on me, Joel Van Dyne. Uh, um, oh, uh, uh, what's her name as Joel Van Dyne? Uh, the tall woman. Uh, yes. Elizabeth Debicki. Debicki. I mean, I mean. And says that she's finding it especially hard to take when these earnest, ravaged folks at the lectern say they're here before the grace of God. Except that's not the strange thing she says. Because when Gately nods hard and starts to interject about it was the same for and wants to launch into a fairly standard Boston AA agnostic soothing riff about the God in the slogan being just shorthand for a totally subjective and up to you higher power and AA being merely spiritual instead of dogmatically religious, a sort of benign anarchy of subjective spirit, Joel cuts off his interjection and says that, but her trouble with it is that for the grace of God is a subjunctive a counterfactual, she says, and can make sense only when inducing a conditional clause, e- like e.g., but for the grace of God, I would have died on Molly Notkin's bathroom floor. So that an in- indicative transposition, like I'm here <laughs> but for the grace of God, is, she says, literally senseless. And regardless of whether she hears it or not, it's meaningless. And that the foamy enthusiasm with which these folks can say what uh, in fact means nothing at all makes her want to put her head in a rat range at the thought that substances have brought her to the sort of pass where this is the sort of language she has to has, have blind faith in. <laughs> Gately looks at a rect- rectangular blue selvaged expanse of clean linen whose gentle rises barely allude to any features below. He looks at her and has no idea whether she's serious or not, or whacked, or trying like Dr. Jeff Day to erect denial-type fortifications with some kind of intellectualist showing off. And he doesn't know what to say in reply. He has absolutely nothing in his huge square head to identify with her, uh, or latch onto, uh, uh, or latch onto, or say an encouraging reply. And for an instant, the provident cafeteria seems pin-drop silent and his own heart grips him like an infant rattling the bars of its playpen, and he feels a greasy wave of an old and almost unfamiliar panic. And for a second, it seems inevitable that at some point in his life, he's going to get high again and be back in the cage all over again, because for a second, the blank white veil leveled at him seems a screen on which might uh, well be projected a casual and impressive black and yellow smiley face, grinning, and he feels all the muscles in his own face loosen and descend kneeward, and the moment hangs there, distended, until the white flag raffle coordinator for November, Glenn Kay, glides up to the podium mic in his scarlet velour cap, 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 caparison, caparison and makeup and candelabrum with candles the same color as the floor tile 
and uses the plastic gavel to formally end the break and bring things back to whatever passes here for order for the raffle drawing. <laughs> the Watertown guy with mid- middle-level sober time who wins the big book uh, publicly offers it to any newcomer that wants it, and Gately is pleased to see Bruce Green raise a big hand and decides he'll just turn it over and ask ferocious Francis G for feedback on subjectives and subjunctives and countersexuals, <laughs> and the <laughs> infant leaves its playpen alone inside him, and the rivets of the long table his seat's attached to make a brief distress noise as he sits and settles in for the second half of the meeting, asking silently for help to be determined to try to really hear or die trying. Let's read one tiny little paragraph just to just okay, to great. cap it off, which is that uh, new 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 York City's harbors, Liberty Island's giant lady has the sun for a crown and holds what looks like a huge photo album under one iron arm, and the other arm holds aloft a product. The product is changed every first January by brave men with <laughs> pythons and cranes. They change the torch to whatever's being advertised that year. Mm-hmm. That's very funny. Yeah. Uh, good segment. That really is the segment where it all comes together, where you yeah. realize that they're all in one place. Gang's all here. And I feel like that is like a kind of, it must be like a turning point for this this book where you're like, okay, so all the things that we've been learning about for the first third of this book, they're yeah. all actually literally in the same room. Right. Kate, Kate Gompert in the psych ward, uh, Bruce Green in the trailer park with the guy with the hair lip and the snakes. Uh, Joel. Joel. Clinette. Um, Lynette with that horrible fucking passage. Ken Erdaddy, who's Erdaddy's like the, like the first s- second second pa- par- uh, chapter. I was thinking about specifically this section that we we just read, the way that we are doing this book and, and absorbing it. Mm-hmm. Which I I mean, it is broken into chapters, so it is meant to be consumed cha- chapterly. Mm-hmm. But but they're not the chapters don't well they have headings, but it's only by date. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I it, it made me kind of appreciate getting this, the way that we're doing this in these weekly installments, the way that I get to read this, which is probably uh, dissimilar than anyone else mm-hmm. who has done it in like these discrete, you know, episode length uh, chunks. I don't know. It, this, this feels like the, uh, uh, the beginning of a season two or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, and and the funny thing is, like hearing all these people again, you're like, oh, I like all these people. It's like <laughs> hearing about your old friends or something. Uh, here's another pitch: Elizabeth Debicki as uh, Joel Van Dyne, The Rock in like Southland Tales mode as uh, Don Gately. It's I think right now it's like Don kind of sounds like I mean he's not a good guy. We saw him, uh, yeah. you know, we saw him rob a house and accidentally and kill, kill a, a, guy, yeah. a French separatist, or a Quebecois separatist. But in like, but in like a a, a Three Stooges esque way, accidentally kill a guy. You know, I think in, in honestly, like to way. me, I I hear Channing Tatum. You see, you see, you think Channing Tatum because the the Rock is too like he's got too much of a um like worldliness about him versus like Channing Tatum feels like he's from like one place. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. What do you think? Or is it that you think like Don get, cause Don Gately is a bit of a himbo. He's like, he's a bit of an airhead, right? Yeah. No, he's not very smart. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that Channing Tatum could does sell a, does that a better a job. Better. Of, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, he's not smart, but he's deep. He's he not. Is. He's not a. He's not book smart. He's street smart. Exactly. And uh, wh- which one of those is more useful? <laughs> I like. I like the detail of the guy 
asking him for permission to go to the bathroom. Him knock, saying, yourself knock yourself out. He's got a great. He's he's written as just like having this great aura. Yeah, he's got like a, look. I like his vibes. Like he's he is kind of like bit like Big Brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know, helping you when you're when you're going through it. And it is very. It is genuinely sweet. Uh, like I very much appreciate the way that the character is written of of him getting this sense of purpose of being the the big brother of this house. Mm-hmm. Um. Like I, f- I don't know. I feel like that that's something that's very understandable, especially for the type of guy that 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 he is portrayed as. Mm-hmm. I don't know when you when you first read this, mm-hmm. what did you what did you feel when you realized oh all these people are in the same place? Uh, I mean, I I don't I don't remember. I I think I was relieved to see <laughs> that this was going that someplace. this was going someplace. And that all of these people, because yeah, I, w- I was having trouble um, keeping track mm-hmm. uh, of, of people at a certain point. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm a little spoiled in that you, that just talking to you, I've been, you you were like, yeah, they all end up at Ennett House. Yeah, uh, spoiler. Which is, I guess, a spo- oh, yeah, which is a spoiler as much <laughs> as anything like this could could be spoiled. But I guess just going in super cold, you would not know that. So I guess that, that colors my approach to this mm-hmm. book a little bit knowing that everything is going to come together in that specific way mm-hmm. yeah i mean the, the the thing where he privately thinks of uh black people as the n-word like calls them out of their mind is yeah. like not great but uh, i mean it is that is it's an interesting way to reveal that about a person but i mean but that's also like the the fucking the kind of cheating way that cliff's notes are is like you can just do or not cliff's notes footnotes but, you can be yeah. like Footnote, by the way, this guy's racist. (laughs) (laughs) Footnote 151. uh, In a ways that I'm not depicting in the main text, this guy's racist. Yeah, right. Ken Erdetti. Ken Ken Erdetti. I also thought it was kind of clever that, you know, his insistence that he's really trying to listen, but Mm -hmm. even like the text gets distracted with all the hot chicks everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like he's clearly not, (laughs) he's not listening. Like the text is literally like, uh, the the text eyes turn and, uh, lowers their sunglasses (laughs) and goes boy. I mean this, uh, it's, it's male gaze in literature form. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Cause I'm remembering that you were rolling your eyes a little bit that even, he in the text as he's first describing Kate uh, Gombert breasting boobily while, while she uh, like recovering from, recovers her from a suicide attempt. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's uh, men. Men are, are are being that way. Speaking of which, gotta gotta turn the clock back to zero. Oh yeah, we had two. We had two more people. discourse. Yeah. I hadn't heard that in pro- a promising young, young woman, woman. Someone is uh, there's like a DFW bro in there. Yeah, that's uh, somebody is is signified as being uh, a douche a douchey bro by uh, reading Infinite Jest in the in the film Promising Young Woman, winner of best screenplay. It won best screenplay. I believe that is the Academy Award winning screenplay. So. The joke of some asshole reading uh, Infinite Jest is an Academy Award winning joke as of last year. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. To me, all that, that sounds like it was. I feel like the if you want to update the literary bro dude thing, you mm-hmm. have him mansplain like Elena Ferrante or something. Yes. You have to read My Brilliant Friend. It's just simply stunning, like a stunning portrait of a because of you brilliant think, friends. Because you think it's going to be just a light beach read, and then it turns into so much more. You simply must read it. Yeah, uh, no. The 
Also, the woman who wrote that uh, screenplay is named Emerald Fennel, which just sounds like <laughs> a uh, it's it sounds like a a boutique brand of uh, vegetable. No, the way that I would do that joke is uh is make the uh the guy the douchey guy like a a fan of some made up like bestseller literary fiction of the time, which mm-hmm. is like oh. I've been reading the latest New York Times bestseller. Have you heard of it? This is the name of the time that we have. This is the name of the time that we have. And for you all know, those such a, uh, and so it is such. <laughs> and also is such so, as so, it so onto, such as it onto you. Uh, yeah, you know what the names of uh, the name of a book like that. Yeah, and this is the play, and this is the place that I see you have been. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the place that I see you have been. Uh, anyway, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know if I have much more to say about this other than, uh, you know, Avengers Assemble. Yeah. Uh, and I can't help but I admit, imma- but Assembling imagine- a crack team. Uh, well, that's the, the kind literally, of vibe, the, the vibe, <laughs> that's Joel, kind of the vibe Joel's that I get case. is like, I can't help but imagine like, so what, are they going to like have to do a heist to like steal the, uh, the, the entertainment from somebody? <laughs> I'm not going to say Wait, nothing because, about that. Gay. G- g- Gauging by your your gasp face, did I just guess the p- plot of this book? Well, you didn't guess it because it's even already been. It was on like the third page of the book. Okay, it's just so cloaked in all of the mess that's going around happening to Hal and Condensa that um, it, it's it's easy to not even understand what, what what the hell he's going on about. Okay, so all I'll say is is uh, is gasp. Keep all I say is keep uh, keep keep coming. Okay, great. Uh, um. It's a, it's good to it's good to hear from you, <laughs> and uh, keep keep it keep it rolling one day at a time. One day at a time. Yeah. Uh, oh, the, the speaking of one day at a time, the last thing I'll say that moment where Don has this kind of like total like schlumping of like when he's talking to oh, Joel, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she confuses him so badly, and he just like has this like premonition, not premonition, but just this feeling of like, ah, oh, fuck, like I could I could go out there again. Like he sees that that yeah. smiley face. Uh, on the screen of her veil, uh, I I identify with that not as a an addict or even a depressed person, but just like you know, sometimes there are those moments that are triggered by something kind of like not even something that makes sense or something that's very consequential. But you just look at it and you're like, life is so long. <laughs> like it, it just like, oh yeah. my god, how much like how much more bullshit am I going to ha-? like? It's a, a type of bullshit that you're like, how much more of this can I take? Yes. Well, I was also thinking about that as I have no idea if he uh, if this is intentional on his part or if this is just uh, Wallace being a fucking dude, literary dude, bro, Mm. of that kind of thing of being like women, man, they just they they, they're always making you do the things that you don't want to do leading you into into temptation. If they if they weren't so fucking pretty, you wouldn't have to do all your drugs. Uh. I don't know. That, uh, uh, kind so, of something to like, clock. That's a that's a segment yeah. that I I had forgotten about. That little moment. Did I bring them. up uh, on last episode the guy who messaged us and saying that uh, about AA is a form of addiction? Yeah. I I uh, talk, we talked I about that last week. I can't remember if we just talked about that privately or, or I can't. I, I can't remember that. either. All all things are are blurring yeah. together. Uh, I guess it's the difficult thing when we talk about this book off mic and then talk about it on on mic and then we're like which was which. I don't know. Some guy. I had a, I had a very nice conversation with some guy and I maybe talked about it last week about how 
uh, you have to get addicted to AA to break the addiction of everything else. Yes, uh, right. Which I thought was an interesting concept. Yes, I we talked about this on like last time. I think so. All right, anyway. Yeah. Uh, all right. So now here we are, forty nine episodes into the series, and now things really start to cook. Yeah, yeah, we're we're cooking with gas now, yeah, man. Every all the do- all the dominoes are set up, and it's time for to knock them over like a house of cards. A house of car- cardellinis. Uh, all right. Anything more than we want to talk about today? I think I'm all right. Uh, keep on listening. We'll t- take this pod one day at a time. Keep coming back. And I'll uh, keep mentioning it. Uh, the Infinite Jess Pod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, uh, topics that we should address. Concerns. Uh, or just want to say, hey. 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 Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hi. All right. Bye. Bye.